This is a test of your service broadcast system. Do you know where your da- Do you know where da- your dad is? Hey, listeners, and welcome back to Zero Credits, the show where we talk about things. I'm Henry. And I'm John. And together we're Henry and John. And I didn't know you spoke Finnish. Oh, are you referring to the fact that I said hello in Finnish? Yeah, hey. Yes, H-E-I. I spent eight years in Finland. Did you? Nope. Okay. I just wanted to pretend like my life was interesting. Interesting thing about the Finnish... They love their personal space. And their video games. I didn't know that. There's a street in Reykjavik, I don't know, it's called Baldur's Gate. That's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. Who made Baldur's Gate? Was it a Finnish company? No, it was Bioware. They just really like video games. (laughs) That's interesting. That could go hand in hand with the personal space, because when I say they like their personal space, I mean... There's like a 10-foot bubble around each Finnish person. Mm-hmm. The way to wait at a bus stop is to literally like line up five feet apart. So can I move to Finland? Yeah. They don't like foreigners. Oh. They're tolerant. Wait, does that mean my personal space will be twice as big? Yes. Perfect. Oh my god, Finland. They also love saunas, but personal saunas. Oh, I'm okay with this. I'm not down with those Japanese saunas with all the people and the monkeys. <laughs> those are hot springs. Yeah. Sa- oh, I a, guess... A sauna's like a sweat box. Oh. Ugh. You know, it's where you go to cleanse your pores. Not your monkeys. No. That's an onsen. Is That's that... what they call in Japanese, onsen hot springs. Okay. Yeah. All right. These are the things I know. Look at us. Sharing knowledge about the world. Ooh, gotta stop that. But, yeah, we do have to stop that, because we have to warn you guys that for some reason our little microphone here is uh, having a little bit of technical difficulties. Uh, conniption, if you will. Yeah, it's being really uh, a diva, if if that, I'm gonna go with diva. So it seems to be stopping intermittently, and uh, we have no idea when or why this will happen. And so it might happen that... We're in the middle of a conversation or something, and we might just transition suddenly, violently, and abruptly. If we notice that it's stopped, we'll try to catch back up as best as we can. Otherwise, we're sorry. Because, you know, we we really get in these conversations. It could be years before we notice. It could be an entire lifetime. Yeah. We doing? <laughs> That's a great question, Henry. What are we doing? Yeah. Oh, well... I, I, uh, oh. What I'm doing is is going through a little bit of a personal crisis. Oh, do you want to talk about it, or should we skip over it? Oh, we can talk about it. All right. Uh, I've really been struggling with, and this is going to be the most pretentious-sounding thing in the entire world. Don't worry. We have our own podcast where we only talk about our personal problems <laughs> and struggles. I think we can handle a little more pretentiousness. Okay, well, here's the thing. I'm trying to figure out whether or not what I do is modernist or postmodernist. Well, now, now, when you say what you do, what do you mean? 
Uh, comedy, basically. Oh. I'm trying to figure out whether I do modernist or postmodernist comedy, and not in a crazy, pretentious way. I, I'm just trying to figure out which of the two philosophies I apply to it. Alright, that's interesting. There is a third option, not to throw a wrench into your, your, your little crisis here. What's the third option? We exist in a time period beyond both of those. Hmm. And so... Post-postmodernist. It'll be 20 or so years before you realize what you were doing. I'm looking forward to naming that. (laughs) No, no, that's not how it works. That's how it's studied. But, like, if you could... If you feel like you're you're more toward one or the other and not doing something, like, new or different, then, yeah, I, I guess it could benefit you to sort of break that down and see what you're doing. It's also based on, like, gross oversimplifications of what modernist and postmodernist thought are made up of. Yeah. Because essentially, in my mind, the the conflict comes from, in my mind, modernists believe that uh, truth is from work, you know, through effort. If you expend the calories, you can arrive at truth. All right. And in my mind, postmodernists tend to reject a meta-narrative and say that it isn't through hard work that you find truth. You've already found truth. You are truth. Everything is true. So, I mean, if we're going to talk about the history of these movements or these these ways of thinking, these philosophies, uh, the modernism philosophy was like turn of the not turn of the century, post World War Two. Yeah, where people were coming back, the ones that survived were coming back from war. What are you talking about modernist or postmodernist? I'm just talking about modernist. Okay. Um, just and this is more about just the overall background behind the the uh, the philosophy philosophy. Mm-hmm. But uh so people are coming back from war, re-entering the workforce and noticing the landscape had changed while they were gone. Suddenly there were advertisements everywhere, like billboards on buildings, billboards in the countryside. This they were being like attacked or assaulted by an imagist culture mm. that was not there before they left for war. Mm. Um, I mean, and I'm really referring just to the, uh, the writers, because that's, that's the facet of the, the philosophy that I know. I mean, considering the fact that philosophy is born from pure ideas and writing is the fastest way to communicate pure ideas, they're kind of on the fast track to, uh, charting new philosophical landscapes. Yeah. So you, you're inundated by all of these advertisements, and people, the, the, the populace around you, like, they're, they're not really reading anymore. They're not doing anything really worthwhile. They're, they're going to work, plugging in the hours at like a factory or something, and they're buying the products that are being advertised. People are all becoming drones. Mm. So this idea that people need to work to arrive at truth is sort of just like a wake-up call. Not your own work, not, not the work that you're doing, like this mindless drone work, but really apply yourself to re- arrive at a truth, you know? reject the advertisements, reject your kish ideals of culture or whatever, and try to arrive at truth by working toward it. It, It's kind of... Most modernists were very (laughs) anti-society. A lot of them were expatriates, you know. Mm -hmm. They they went to Paris and contributed nothing to, like, the people around them other than the art they created. Mm -hmm. Would you consider, like, uh, Dali and Bunuel and stuff like that modernist? They are somewhere in there. Okay. Um, because, I mean, the, the the conception of modernism that I've been reading about, dates are hard for y- philosophical movements. Yeah. And uh, the, the ones that I read say, like, modernism began, like, 
during the Civil War and ended with the dropping of the atomic bomb. But that seems not totally to match up. The modernist movement in writing happened with the onset of World War II. Mm -hmm. And it was really a result of that. A lot of the war writers at that time came back. I say war writers, but people like the people who fought in wars, who were also writers, Hmm. came back with this weird feeling of the world is dead and weird, let's like corpses living in a graveyard. Mm. I mean, that's Samuel Beckett, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really just depends on different areas, I guess, in the world, because everyone kind of, they think, all, all reacted differently. I, I think I may have been reading about it in terms of architecture, so... That might be true. I don't... Mm. It, it, <laughs> there's actually a weird sort of theory that architecture inspire. Like, there's a cycle, and it's like architecture... To poetry, to literature, to art, or something like that. Back to architecture. Back to architecture. architecture. Yeah. I think I've seen that somewhere, and I've seen uh, kind of anecdotal proofs of it. And it's a solid theory. It's a good idea. So, like, modernity is all really about, you know, art for art's sake. But within doing that art, by doing that art, we arrive at truth. Mm. And uh, postmodernism is the rejection of that notion, as you, you pointed out, where uh, basically truth is all around us. There's no working to it. We're living embodiments of truth. And to point that out is to destroy it a little bit. Um, and they play with the notion of working toward it mm. to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, like in like Waiting for Godot, for instance, the work in Waiting for Godot is the waiting Mm. That's all they can do, is wait. And the fact that Godot never arrives is sort of the, like, you know, the, the gasping realization. You can't wait, like, the truth is just, like, the truth is the truth of their situation. The truth is, unless they do something, they'll just be in the same state. The truth won't come to them because they're living it. Oh, I see. Okay. It, it, yeah. And there's multiple ways to interpret everything, and everything's bullshit, and I hate the Academy, but... Yeah, the Academy. So that's a breakdown of, of the literature side of modernism and postmodernism. And the the thing that I've been struggling with, with how it pertains to comedy, something that I care a lot about, uh, is that there there's essentially no literature on modernism in comedy. There is literature on postmodernism in comedy, but it seems to almost completely misunderstand what postmodernism is. Yeah. Uh, they, whenever I read anything about postmodernism in comedy, it relates to meta-comedy, it relates to non-comedy, and I don't think those are necessarily from the right school of thought, at least from where I'm sitting, what I'm thinking of when I think of these two ideas and comedy. So, like, would you read a lot about sort of, like, Andy Kaufman in that? I think Andy Kaufman is actually a good example of, uh, maybe modernist comedy, because Andy Kaufman, his... His art was art to be art, to arrive at truth. Andy Kaufman put a ton of work into everything he did. Look at his whole wrestling persona. He had a wrestling persona? He had a wrestling persona. It's amazing. The comedian? The the comedian Andy Kaufman. Had a wrestling persona. Yes, it is absolutely true. That's awesome. But, I don't know, when I think of postmodern versus modern comedy, I, for me it comes back to the idea of work. Like, the amount of work you put in equates to, like, movement in a weird way, progress, truth. And I, I struggle with that, with this idea because in my mind, a modernist comedian does show after show after show and through those shows arrives at a truth of their own comedy. They put in work, they do art for art's sake, and that leads them closer to the manifestation of what they wanted to be, which is telling the truth and the truth is funny. Yeah. 
And it's, it's not necessarily, you know, the factual truth. You know, it doesn't matter if it happened. It's more of a truth of a capital T. Yeah. Know? It's not, it's, it's this weird nebulous truth. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, like a postmodern comic would be someone who performs without having written anything. Uh, a postmodern comic would be someone who exists in whatever they're saying, because whatever they're saying is worth exactly as much as whatever they put work into. Well, in that regard, improv is, is all postmodernance. That's what I've been thinking about, because I really like improv, and I feel like stand-up and improv are kind of two pillars on opposite sides of this debate. Yeah. Because improv does have practice, it has art for art's sake, it has effort, but it's nothing is nothing is wound up around itself, nothing burns the calories to become something more. Everything is extremely fleeting, as true as it's going to be, and then it's gone. You know, improv is... Presenting not a lasting truth, but I, I do think you can get to a truth and mm-hmm. within it. I mean, with any comedy, we're, we're taking elements of our lives that we think are funny, that we've observed, and we're, we're putting them in the spotlight to, like, just highlight, hey, it's weird that we do this. Mm. And uh, that's... that's You can do that in both stand-up and improv. Mm. Just improv is more of, like, an indirect way. Yeah. Improv gets at what is entertaining to people through nebulous means through through back alleys they reach people and i don't know the thing that i keep thinking about is when i think of modernist comedy at least in this scope that i've put it in and then i think of postmodern comedy i think that postmodern comedy can't exist in a successful capacity because how do you explain why some people are funnier if you accept that every truth is equal when you observe comedy under any light any sort of critical lens it kind of dis- it kind of evaporates. That's why no one writes about it, because comedy's impossible to write about. Yeah, it's 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 nebulous completely, and I keep using that word, but it's it's like humor and funny. It, you can't. You could try to study it, and you could be successful, but at the end of the day, you're, you're breaking something that's supposed to be just merely and like you know enjoyed, and you're breaking it into little pieces so that it loses whatever qualities that made it. And I hate that, because I love understanding things. And understanding comedy is like chasing smoke. It's gone. See, when you see it go around a corner and you go after it, it's gone. There are, I think there is sort of a successful way to go about it, and that is heavily reliant on the meta sort of aspect of it. Um, so if you look at Bo Burnham's late, latest special, Make Happy. Yes. All he's doing in that special, I'm saying I'm being reductive. The main thing he's doing in that in that special is breaking down what it means to perform. He's deconstructing it, putting it in front of the audience, and presenting it as a show. Mm. And there are some moments where the theater is just dead silent, mm-hmm. and like he he's actively like saying jokes, and they're just quiet. And I think that's part of sort of like even if we we do it successfully and like we break it down and understand it there's no you know there's no substance to it Mm. i don't know i i absolutely think that's true because the thing that's annoying about comedy is it's so hard to count for talent or enjoyability because take someone like bo burnham the way that meta comedy usually works is people say this is why you think my joke is funny isn't that ridiculous And then people laugh, because when you tell people what they're thinking, or you tell people things that are in their subconscious, they learn something new, they laugh, it's a gut reaction. But Bo Burnham will get up there and say, here's what makes my joke sad. Yeah. Here's what's sad about why you like this joke. And people love it. 
Bo Burnham's, you know, he's talented for what he is, but I don't, he's not like, I don't know, like a comedian comedian. He's not. He's a performer. Yeah. Uh, he, he has said multiple times, yeah, I'm not a stand-up comedian. Never said I was one. Yeah. I'm just someone who puts on little d- So yeah, I mean, Bo Burnham's alright. Yeah. But, but- Jinx. Jinx, Jinx, you owe me a butt. Anyway. Uh, I don't know. Is it impossible to define comedy as one of these two things? Is it possible to define anything as strictly one of these two things? Well, yeah, I mean, probably? Because it's weird, you know, no one sets out to, to like, okay, the comedian does not set out to say, I'm going to make a modernist stand-up show. Mm. They probably set out and say, I'm going to make the best show I can, mm. and then other people can read what they want into it. I mean, that's how it works with writers. I mean, that's kind of how it works with all philosophy, is that the philosophy that you end up having is the one that people ascribe to you, not the one that you ascribe to yourself. Yeah. Because people who ascribe philosophies to themselves are dickbags. Another thing about these two terms is their moment in history might just be over. Yeah. And, like, we could be trying to hold a lens that is cracked or foggy or just non-existent up to something that's completely new. I mean, what comes after postmodernism? What comes after all truth is equal? What comes after I abandon all meta-narratives for my own? Uh, basically what happens in personal experience, we're watching it happen now in cinema and books, Kitsch takes over. Oh no! Kitsch wins. I hate Kitsch. Kitsch is, it's the only thing left. So, in your mind, if Kitsch were to win, what is the world? It's the world we live in now. I, I am honestly believe, if you just look at what movies are successful, what people spend the money that they work so hard to make on. Mm. I mean, we've got reboots and sequels as 98% of the things that Hollywood releases into the major theaters. We've got sequels of of books that are in play form hitting the, the bestseller list. Like, everything's derivative of everything else. Kitsch, the popular popularity, you know, pop culture, stands for popular culture. Oh! Ironically, I guess, it won. Yeah, I guess it did. Or, or not ironically, it's like, I guess we should have seen the thing called pop culture being popular enough to edge out all other culture. At what point are we going to get to that uh, point that's past pop culture? Basically, when are we going to become modernist again? It's going to take something. It's going to take a global event on a scale that, you know, is unprecedented, like another war where we start thinking differently again, or, or just, it's going to take 20 years, and then we look back and say, oh, we were thinking this at the time. Did 9-11 kill postmodernism? I actually, I think I read that somewhere. I just, I don't know, I'm not trying to, like, be weird or come up with an original thought, but that's something that I just thought about. I think it's, it's a thing where it's like, it's really hard to watch yourself in a moment. Mm. You know, it's hard to just watch a moment happen. Well, no, it's not hard to watch a moment happen. You can just watch a moment happen. But no, it's... It's hard to analyze something within the moment. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh... I, I think I brought this up facetiously, but it's a whole pile of sticks thing. Yeah. You know, if a man puts a stick in front of you and says, is this stick a pile? And he keeps putting sticks. At what point did it become a thing that's different than a bunch of sticks? And, and the, the only unfortunate thing is these these philosophical thinking movements... They tend to last about 50 years or so, and so it's like until, until, I don't know, because people are making new stuff, we could be on the edge of a new way of thinking, 
and we just don't know it yet because it's not been published, published and circularized as thoroughly as the other things were. Wouldn't it be interesting if we lived in a world where the proliferation of the internet and communication made philosophical movements way faster? And in a way, we might be living in an era of a bunch of micro-movements that just, they're all really big and explosive, but they fizzle. Mm. And so it's like, you know, it's impossible for them to really make any real impact. I mean, you end up with things like the the Sto- like the Stoics, right? Yeah. There were uh, so many different philosophical movements at the time, but the reason the Stoics were so huge is their explosion like blew the fuses out on all the other smaller movements. Stoicism stood for something so much bigger and more grandiose than everything else, so everyone's focus was on Stoicism, and then Stoicism broke down into hundreds and hundreds of different versions of Stoicism, and that's how we ended up with ph- the philosophies that we have today. Is they were just born from Stoicism, and man, yeah. Well, we, we need something like that, you know. Right now, it's as though we're floating along within the wake of these last two really big movements, and there, there. I think there have been arguments that we've entered a new age. It's just like we don't know what it is yet. Mm. I mean, I, I. It's entirely possible, and maybe, uh, maybe it's been borne out through history that as philosophical movements like postmodernism mature, they're less strong. They're there are more tiny explosions of different things, and sure, we might still be postmodernist, but it's not as strong as it once was, and something else is going to overtake it, and we might just float along in this semi-post-postmodernist world. And I think floating on just might be what the average person does. How many people living in the time period of the modernist knew that they were living in the modernist period? Only the people who were affected indirectly by the philosophy and lived their lives because it appealed to them. They didn't know they were modernist. Yeah. You know, huge philosophical movements. No one, no one wakes up and writes on their shirt, I'm a Stoic now. Yeah. It's just certain tenets of that philosophy appeal to them so deeply that they ingrain it in themselves, and then you get the Stoics. So, I mean, we just gotta wait for the next cult leader to step up and say we're all ducks, and then we'll live in the duck period. Yeah, postmodernist, po- se- semi-duck. Uh, I think the one thing that I've learned from this conversation is, uh, this has put my mind to rest. Okay. And I feel like trying to put what I do into a modernist or postmodernist box is pointless. I think, I think it's best to just do what you do and do the best that you can. And then, you know, kind of let someone else ascribe to you mm. what they think you do. And if they're wrong, you know, well, just fuck them and, and then <laughs> wait until one comes along that you like. I mean, I've always believed that you cannot take credit for uh, any meaning that other people interpret from your actions. Well, that would be really interesting <laughs> as a writer. I mean, I, I don't think that you should uh, you should take credit for people saying, "Oh, well, the the eyes were the eyes of God." You can't say, "Um, yeah, they were the eyes of God." I thought that the whole time. I'm pretty sure that's happened. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Maybe in that same book. <laughs> Maybe people have ascribed meaning to things that were never meant to have meaning in a popular book. It's that, it's that horrible, dumb joke where it's like the English teacher asked her students, Oh, what, what do the blue curtains symbolize? And the author goes, I just wanted them to be blue, which completely misses the point of symbolism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's that joke. <laughs> but I mean, symbols are easy to teach, so it's whatever. Symbols are dumb. The only th- symbolism that actually exists 
is the green light and green and uh, and green Gatsby in <laughs> <And> green <laughs> and of green Gatsby's <laughs> the green light and great Gatsby is the only symbol that I that I will agree with. It is the only symbol. It's for money. Also, Holden Caulfield's hat. It's got a hole in it. It represents movies. <laughs> Those goddamn movies. Symbolism is boring. Yeah, it's, it's the it's, least interesting way to think about things. It's a weak way to write, but it was a very important thing to understand to get through the Great Gatsby. I think symbols are like the like the arithmetic of books. It's like yeah, it's the first thing you learn because you need to know it to know everything else because it's the it's the easiest thing to be taught. Yeah. Have you noticed that a lot of people only understand symbolism, and whenever they try to critique any work, they try to shoehorn symbols into it so they can sound smart, even though they should probably be considering the written word from other points of view, and maybe broadening their horizon instead of turning written works into a series of meaningless fucking toasters with wings on them. I have noticed that, yes. (laughs) Cool. Anyway... Wow, so we got really, really deep and heavy into that, and then, I mean... This is one of those episodes that we run the risk of, do we have one credit? Do we? I don't. I mind. Alright, so it has to be both of us. Yeah, no. So we have half a credit. Half a credit between us rounds down to zero. Exactly. Money does not round up. It does never. Ask your bank to round up your account. Yeah, they'll laugh. Yeah, one time I had $32 in my account and I asked my bank to round it up to a million. I got that all the time. And they said no. Vehemently. Assholes. The banks? Yeah, banks are assholes. Look at them. Just spitting money out of... Whoa, weird. But no, that... Yeah, that definitely went places. Yeah, so, uh... I don't know. I don't... We have no way to judge time in this weird microphone technicality world. Judging from the fact that you want to judge time, probably break time. I think think it's time for a break, but we have no way to know if it's appropriate, so let's just do it. Let's take our break. You break me a break. Deal break with me it. Off a break. A break. 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 Deal with it. Deal with it. Microphone. We apologize for our technical difficulties. Now people are clapping. I'm just kidding. Oops. Just make that a beep. Hey, Henry. Oh, John. Hi. How are you doing today? Doing all right. You know how you're doing? How? You could lose a little weight. Okay, that's kind of hurtful. You know how you can lose some weight? Wait. Do I really? Are are you being serious, or are we doing a bit? Do you like pasta? Bet you do. Okay, yeah, I like pasta, but... Did you know that there's a squash with pasta inside of it? It's called a spaghetti squash. Why would you... Why would you... And all that and more can be found at your local Whole Foods. But, John, this, we actually do this for people. Are you... Yeah. Do I need to lose weight? Is that... Go down to Whole Foods. They have a buffet. Not for you. Oh, wow, that's even more hurtful than look, the first Look, I'm remark. sorry, the, the copy's... Look, read the copy. I, I don't want to look at the it. The copy's telling me to call you fat. John, you wrote it. You're beautiful. Did you, didn't you write copy that... You wrote the copy this week? No, it gets sent in. All right. In my handwriting. So who's our contact at Holes Food? Uh, d- j- Jonathan Hole. Jonathan. Jonathan Hole Foods. Jonathan Hole Whole Foods. Well, you should give him a piece of your mind. Sure. What's his representation number? Uh, you mean his fax number? Sure. 8675309. 
All right. If you put that on your keypad, it spells out Whole Foods. <laughs> there are other things at Whole Foods, too, such as quinoa, watermelon, quinoa-watermelon, milk, milk, milk. There's a thing called milk. I think it's peanut milk. I thought it was mulch that they just pulped into milk. No, that's mulk. <laughs> They even have wines. They have wines. So you can drown out your sorrows when your podcast co-host calls you fat. No wines for you, Mr. Alcoholic. Jesus. Look, it said to call you an alcoholic. That This is really specific copy. They also have public bathrooms. Not for you, registered sex offender. Well, that's not even Look, true. It, it, tells that's not, call, no. it tells me to call you a registered sex offender. Stop. Sorry. This is slander and okay, libel. Okay, 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 fine. Jesus, Whole Foods, get your shit together. Call them at 8675-30-WHOLE-FOODS. Order your spaghetti squash today, you fat alcoholic pervert. All right. That was an ad. That was such an ad. And, uh, we shouldn't, we shouldn't point out that they listened to an ad. Really? I think... Is that, like, bad form? Maybe. Uh, Well, that... I've been listening to some other, uh, programs, and they don't ever really point out that you just listened to an ad. Uh, Should we do a redo? I don't know. Let's do a redo on the intro. Okay. Well, I thought we were just... Are we going to keep this part in and just redo an intro? No, we'll, we'll just redo the intro. Okay. Count me in. Alright, uh... <clears throat> live in three, two, one. Go. Nothing happened! How are you? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Cool. Great. Alright. That, and that leads us into a... This nothing happening leads us into a little segment that we're gonna briefly call... I don't know, show notes? Are you calling it that briefly? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I like show notes. Alright, show notes. This is where we talk about notes we have about our own show. Oh. Yeah. This, uh... I'm not okay with this. No, I'm just basically gonna tell them the thing we agreed agreed upon, and then we'll move on. It's a brief... It's a brief thing. Okay. brief. So it's a brief segment that we're briefly calling... Show notes. I don't know, show notes. Shut out. I said it briefly. Anyway. All right. So basically, uh, John and I noticed, uh, we've been, what did you watching forever? For like six months. It's been like a crutch. Yeah. Basically, every time we come back from a break where nothing happens, we spend about 30 minutes talking about whatever we watched. And so we're going to put that on hold for a foreseeable future. Instead, we will bring you some high-quality thinky content, and not just some watchy content. It's not like they can watch it. Yeah. But, you know. But, uh, we'll, 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 we'll put segments in. We're gonna try new segments for a new segment every week, a new segment every segment. Every uh, segment's new. Segmented segments. No, that's, that's, oh, that's Ma- Maddie's. That's like, Maddie's. Sorry. Sorry. Okay. Did you, uh, I don't know if it, her lawyer got in touch with us. Oh, really? We're, we were supposed, God. we were supposed to ask for permission. I was really worried that was gonna happen. Yeah. I, th- there was like slap on the wrist, you know, not not cease and desist, but just mm-hmm. you know inquire next time. Okay, all right, uh, and, can, we can do that. We can do that. And so that's all. Show notes. Show notes. Show notes. So is that the the segment we're getting? The one segment? No, 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 no. Two new segments every week. <laughs> well, yeah. one new. Every segment is two new segments. Oh, ev- okay, sweet. So in this episode, every segment is two new segments. <laughs> Wait, does that mean 
that the second segment from the first segment also it has, has two. two seg- it's it's like, a hydra. Yeah, it's a hydra. Exponential hydra. All right, here's a segment that I, I, I really think could become something. Uh, let's call it, uh, genius, no. Okay, I have no idea. Alright, what... I'll describe it. Okay, I'll help. Alright. I'm good at punching things up. Alright, punch this up. This segment's gonna be about talking about qualities and elements of video games that are not necessarily tied to just one game that you might notice and you want to just discuss about in a podcast format. Okay, so, uh, I have a, like I said, I'm a, I'm a punch-up artist. Alright, punch it up. So, I think what this segment should be called is, uh, talking about things or qualities in video games that are maybe shared with other video games, and you talk about them in a podcast segment. That's kind of lengthy, don't you, don't you think? Okay, we can shorten it down. I, I was thinking something like Game Corner. Game corner. Corners are done. Alright. No one's into corners anymore. Alright. Uh, okay. Punch up, punch up. Punch up, punch up, punch up. Sorry, I'm psyching myself up. Alright. Okay. The new name of this segment is Video Corner. It's like video games, portmanteau, corner. Alright, welcome to Video Corner. I suppose. I wanted this to be a lasting segment, but... (laughs) Okay, let's take it seriously. Okay. Let's call it Electronic Entertainment Exposition. Alright, welcome to Electronic Entertainment Exposition. The Electronic Entertainment Expo, if you will. (laughs) Also known as E3. Yes. And uh, today I want to talk about games where the gameplay, the main gameplay of said game, is work. Work. Yeah, so think of your games like Harvest Moon or, or the one that came out recently, Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley. Uh, think about Elite Dangerous. Think about just games where the main part of the gameplay is doing a job. Low narrative content, maybe. Yeah. It's like the, the, there are tasks you can do and set out, but like the main thing you're doing is kind of working to get money to buy things. Mm. And, uh, I don't, there's something really weirdly relaxing about these games mm-hmm. in a way where it's like my own job that I work isn't relaxing. I always feel like I'm switched on and, you know, I have to do a certain amount of whatever and these, these hours that I'm working, but, we play games to relax, and but the gameplay is work, so, like, how... What? Let's just talk about it. Maybe it's relaxing because you're doing it on your own terms. All right. Because that I struggled with that with Stardew Valley myself, where I didn't understand why I would spend five or six hours every day just doing repetitive tasks and enjoy it. And I think that it's an intersection of their very low stakes, as in nothing in my life will get worse if I make a bad chicken coop, but... I'm also doing it on my own terms. It is, like, actualizing all these ideas that I have. Like, I want to cut this tree down. I can. No one's here to stop me. This tree's down. Something has changed because I wanted it to. So is it that there's, like, a weird distance or, or you know, artifice between the actions in our game and our own life? I, I think that a lot of it comes down to, if you played Elite Dangerous, yeah, and you were in a situation where no matter what, when you started the game, it was like, be in the Omicron Delta sector in 17 minutes, you wouldn't enjoy it necessarily. No. Because there's there's time pressure, there's deadlines, there's there's something telling you to do something within a constraint that isn't on your terms. So it's more about, like, okay, it, well, 
And then Elite Dangerous, which is a, a game about flying a spaceship in space. Uh, you're the commander of your ship, and it's just your job to go around, do things, get money, buy better ships. Um, but the thing is, the mo- I guess the important thing is, you get to choose what missions you want to take. Mm. No one is ever telling you, be here at this time, or, or get this done. So I guess, unlike work, these, these games have like a weird freedom of choice where it's like, I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And maybe in life we have similar freedoms of choice, but certainly doesn't feel like it. Like, if you're upset with your job... You're not going to quit because jobs are hard to get and you feel lucky to have this job. In a video game, because stakes are so low, you could say, well, I hate this job. I'm going to quit it. I'm going to abandon it, take a different job, do my own thing. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we should do that more in life. Maybe we should. Or maybe life should be more receptive to that sort of thinking, but... Of course, have you tried to tell life what to do lately? I have not, but it also is because life is a, a hellish machine that will tear you apart and ruin your ability to enjoy life on a day-to-day basis if you don't play by its rules. A video game will always be enjoyable because it's designed. Life is not designed. You know, the the difference between fiction and non-fiction is that fiction has to make sense. Don't agree with that totally, but it kind of fits. I, I agree with the point you say where the game is designed to be fun. I mean, it's a game. Games are usually designed to be fun. Uh, challenging and difficult, yes, but at the end of the day, you're supposed to get pleasure and enjoyment out of it. And like you said, life might not necessarily be programmed that same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not getting into <laughs> creation st- oh, no. theories or whatever. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe then is it our job as human beings who kind of are supposed to be able to dictate the society or the rules of the society that they live in, according to all these philosophies and charters and bullshit we signed way back when, mm. is it our job then to make our lives a little more designed so that it's enjoyable, so we're not stuck doing things we don't want to do? I think that would be great. I think that we've designed a system that is as unfun as possible to essentially bully people into doing what other people want them to do. It's a it's a perversion of the social contract. I was actually thinking about that with the... Do you know what gag laws are? Are those laws where you can't talk about them? Yeah, they're laws where you can't talk about, like, your salary. And gag laws are really put in place to bully people into limiting their own freedom. How so? Explain. Because if you can't talk about your salary, then you aren't aware of your options. Your fellow employees aren't aware of how much you make. So if we we design the system so that people are completely isolated, they're put in a corner, they make what they make... No one knows how much they make. Aspiration is gone from them for employees who make more. Transparency is gone. We, a lot of corporate life is putting people in a slaughterhouse, putting them in a big line where they have blinders on, they can't see anything around them, and they just walk forward to to complete some gruesome task. It's true. Is part of gag laws this weird social stigma where you're not supposed to talk about how much you make? I mean, uh, the the social stigma to not talk about the salary does come from, from gag laws, and it does come from industrial revolution times where you'd be fired if you told anyone how much you made. You'd be you'd be beaten by thugs sometimes if you told people how much you made. Are gag laws in effect? Are they legal? Uh, no. 
Oh. For the most part, I don't think so. so uh, there, there are financial institution gag laws. Basically, a gag law is any law where you can't talk about something. Gotcha. But salary, you can discuss your salary. You can have uh, agreements, I believe, in contracts where you'll be fired, but they're unenforceable. All right. That's weird and interesting. Because, you know, freedom of speech. So, there was a time period where life was even more unfun. Yes. And, and gag laws are kind of like uh, an artifact of that time. Mm-hmm. So we should do more things. We should make more un things into unfun things into artifacts of a less fun time and, and make life enjoyable in all aspects. I think it would be worth it to I don't think it's that hard to look at a situation if your options are A and B and go B would allow more people to enjoy life. I don't think that's such a hard decision to make. Uh, in most things, you know, the the huge issues that we talk about as part of the political cycle, maybe some of those are a little more complicated. Yeah. But you're like, should I restrict my employees' ability to freely discuss salary or be transparent with each other? One of these would clearly make people happier if they had more information, if they had more to go on, but which one would make me more money? It's kind of like the same thing with, like, the American weird system of not giving, like, a lot of maternity leave. Mm -hmm. You've got two options. One option would make a really happy employee who would be dedicated to the company and would put forth her best effort to, like, put in really great work. The other one alienates her and makes her feel bad for going through a process that's completely natural. It's very monstrous. <laughs> uh, however, I will say something to throw a wrench into everything we've just said. There's a video game that completely disproves my thesis. Oh, what is it? It's called Cart Life. What's that about? Cart Life is a game where you play one of two or three characters, and uh, the, the one that I played, you're like a Slavic immigrant. That's interesting. And... It is a life simulation of you living in a terrible apartment, uh, working, I think, a newspaper stand or something like that, some terrible job, and it's it's very fleshed out. Uh, you can go to a supermarket and, like, buy a watch. You can't tell time until you buy a watch. You're starting from nothing. Wow. You, you have to sometimes survive for an entire day on just, like, a granola bar you found, and you can make a lot of money. You can... Make yourself succeed in a limited scope. I think the game only lasts for five days. Okay. But you have to make serious decisions. Like, do I take the time to walk home because I don't want to spend money on the bus? You make, like, bottom of the rung. Bottom of the rung is still relatively wealthy by world standards in America. But you make bottom of the rung American choices... And it's enjoyable. That's really interesting and weird. There there are parts of it that are intentionally oppressive, like time limits and things like that. And those affect you in the same way that they do in real life, because it's a huge bummer. It, they stress you out. You never feel like there's enough time. But when you do well, it feels good, much like life does. So... It is it enjoyable because you're getting things done on time and, like, you're, you're making progress and completing things in general? Or is it enjoyable, like, for the same reason a book is enjoyable, because you're experiencing a life that you could never otherwise experience? I think it's both. It's I, both. Okay. I, I think some of it is this voyeurism, because we do not live bottom-rung lives. I we're, mean, we're very wealthy. Yeah, okay, comparatively to the rest of the world, yes. Yeah, we're very, very wealthy. But... I think some of it's voyeurism, because when I go, I'm like, yeah, I can finally buy this coffee. If I buy this coffee, then I won't have to take a nap. If I don't have to take a nap, I can sell this many more newspapers. And that's very easy to feel good about if you're not currently living that situation. But the argument could be made that if you were that person, you'd be exactly that excited, if not more, if that were the case. 
Would you or would you just be downtrodden and really just like, man, I, I, my life is terrible. What do I do? I mean, I've been in places in my life where I've had very little money and very little, very few things. Yeah. And there was a time when I moved to a brand new city and I had nothing, essentially nothing. And I bought a bike and my life got so much better when I had a bike because I could go places faster. I had so much more time. All right. But... I don't know, it's, there's, there's definitely this, this thing about working in video games that can be informed much the same way our real lives are, but I don't think it'll ever reach that level of, of complete despair that life can, of, of total ul- Yeah, good. Glad we agree. Yeah. But I guess, I, I mean, I don't know, it's just like, there are people who would, will never find those games fun. Mm. And there are people who really enjoy their jobs and find their jobs really enjoyable and fun. Weirdos. I mean, they exist. They do. I know them. <laughs> and so it's just like, I guess there are just different people, and different people find different things enjoyable. And if you are one of those people who found a job that's enjoyable and you're making money and you're living life, I hate you. Fuck but you. you're winning. You, yeah. You've won. If you, if you clock into work and it's like starting up Harvest Moon... You won! Yeah, because, like... Cashing your chips! Because, like, I, I find pleasure or, like, enjoyment in these games where it's, like, I'm working in the game towards a goal and earning money and living a good life in this video game, and in real life, I've got none of that. Mm. So it's, like, why would I be cursed? Like, it's, like, only having pictures of water when you're thirsty. Like, yep. <laughs> I can see what I want, but I... There's no... <laughs> but I don't have it. There's no system in the real world, or, or like, there's... There's not as an easy of a system, I guess, to get what I want in the real world like I can in this video game. And let's keep this idea relatively brief, and this kind of speaks to, like, millennial American exceptionalism, or at least personal exceptionalism. Do you think there's a job for everybody? Everyone has a job that they feel like they're just happy, and they're not happy all the time, but a job that's like a video game where you're like, this is an action that I just enjoy doing because I'm doing it. I've heard that so many times that there's a job for everybody, but it's it's really seems like I don't know. I don't think so. I think some people get saddled in jobs they don't like for too long, mm-hmm. and I like those are the people who are sad. I I think it's theoretically totally possible. I think it's rare as hell. Yeah, I think it's very rare for people to find the job that's for them. Because, like, if I look at a job that's, for me, I like the idea of coding, but I know that there's a lot about that that would be frustrating. But I can imagine myself as, like, a like a machinist or something. Yeah. Just someone who makes things with high-tech equipment, and sure, there are headaches related to that, but I just like making things and, and being technical, and maybe if I could do that, I'd be happy. But there's so many barriers to me quitting what I am doing right now to do that that I'm never going to do it. Yeah. I, it's like the same as, like, I could see myself writing for a television show, mm-hmm. but that would require me packing up, moving out to L.A., Hollywood, where... Everyone else around me will be doing the same exact thing. Mm -hmm. So high, you know, entrance barriers and all that. But, yeah, given the opportunity, I probably would love it. Yeah, but it's highly unlikely. Reality sets in and crushes the dreams of everyone around us. But maybe one day it'll happen. Maybe. And maybe the secret to all this is just having the presence of mind to make your job fun. But that puts a huge onus on people to make the job fun, which will probably drive them into a further lack of mindfulness. I mean, 
if making your job fun costs like twice as much as energy as just doing your job, you're going to burn out really fast. Yep, but I mean, if you see yourself on a path to a job that you think would be fun forever, don't stop. Double down on that. Yeah, Ca- cash in your chips. No, don't bet it all on black. Yeah, take the risk because the worst thing that happens, you don't get it. The worst thing that happens is you end up doing the thing you would have done if that didn't work out. Exactly. So you'll be alright. We only have one life to live. We might as well take chances. I'm not saying follow your passion because you'll be rewarded, but follow your passion in the case that you are. Yeah. Follow your passion because there is a slight chance that it could work out. Because it's a lot better than never following your passion and you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah, don't don't be the one who's asking what if at the bus station in Finland standing five feet away from the, the next person who's closest. And ten feet away from that foreigner. Yeah. Weirdos. Freaks. It's like everyone has a physical barrier around them. Gross. But yeah, so that's... Uh, I think that's a good first edition of this, uh, what was it, Electronics Entertainment Exposition? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you can look forward to seeing that again, not next week, but maybe sometime in the near future. Unless we decide to use it as a crutch. Which I hope we don't. Let's not do that. New segment next week. Promise, promise, promise. What we should do is get, like, a tome. A tome? And, like, develop an idea and, like, do it to completion and, like, make it great and then write down the title in that tome. And then, like, we can have a book full of segments that we have that we can make a new show every week with. We could put all those segments in a hat. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a good idea. It really do. You know what that also mean? What does that also mean? Since uh, since we just had a good idea and we told people to follow their passions, it is now legally required of us to end this podcast. You're right. We can't give them too much hope. No. And if you want some false hope, you send 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 send. You can send us an email. Yeah. We'll, we we reply to all emails with false hope every time. And that address is zero credits is a podcast at gmail dot com, where we are just waiting to. Dash some dreams. And if you want some short form hope in the form of 120 characters, did they increase that? It's 140. 140 characters on Twitter.com. We are at ZCPCWHJ. That stands for Zero Creds Podcast with Henry John. They they don't need to know what it stands for. (laughs) It's easier to remember if they know. Alright. It's a backronym. (laughs) Wait, what's a backronym? It's, don't worry about it. Is it an acronym that you could only remember when you're on your back? What? It is. Think of us. No. Think of ZCPC, WHJ. Anyway. Think of us in Paris. Thank God this is over. Thank Christ. We're gonna fix this microphone. Oh, good. Or die trying. Or buy a new one. We could do that. We could just do that. Uh... Yeah, we could do that. Uh, we'll we'll discuss it. John made a Facebook page. What? I told him last week you would. God damn it! I d- mm. John John will make a Facebook page. I'm gonna make a Facebook page. It's gonna be the best you've ever seen. It's gonna have dank memes. Good. That's all I ask for. All I wanted was dank. We memes. need memes for the children. We, all right. That this was. We're out. L- later. Hopefully we sound better next time. Oh god! Hopefully we sound like a four hundred dollar microphone next time. That'd be cool. You could, you would be able to hear us blink. You can hear the money. Sounds like this. Ching ching, 
ching ching. That's the paper money. Kind of curious at how long this is going to last. So I it assume, just goes forever. No, and I, I think we we let the microphone keep recording until it dies. Perfect. That was a good podcast. I think, despite the technical, <laughs> despite the technical, despite the technical difficulties. Yes, it was pretty decent. I really wish I heard something that I wanted. Yeah, I didn't hear anything I wanted the title to be. Yep. That whole time I was focusing super hard on it. It's going to be something that maybe on the re-listen. Yeah. I mean, I always it's, find something. It's not like it's we have like a Harmontown thing where people are just like saying things that might be good titles. I mean, we just have a conversation. I hope that something funny falls out of it. This was more of like educational. We talked a lot. <laughs>